The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Tech. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst Mickey Mordek. G'day, Mickey. Thanks, Gaurav. Hi, Nathan. Hi, mate. Mickey. You just you just ruined the surprise. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna have this great long intro for Nathan and add suspense and uh, motif and themes and everything. And yeah, okay. Well, Nathan Bell's with us as well. G'day, Nathan. Hi, Gaurav. <laughs> Um, I think it's the first time the three of us have done a remote podcast. Mickey? Well, as you can tell by my introduction, I'm no, clearly yeah, not that well-versed. So. <laughs> all right, we'll try and muddle through. Um, Nate, let's begin with you, first of all. Um, NAB raised capital and a big chunk of capital at that. I don't know about your reaction. I was quite surprised to see the amount they raised and the fact that they threw a dividend payment on top of that also surprised me a little bit. Um, what's your view on the NAB raising specifically? And then let's get into the banks um, more generally after that. I, I suppose other banks are probably in line to raise capital too. What's your view? Yeah, there's a lot of aspects to this and we'll do our best to cover a number of them fairly quickly. But you've got to remember that Ross McEwen has just come into this business and we see this all the time where new CEOs come and kitchen sink the earnings. So I don't know, it's very hard to say how much of that he's doing at the moment, but it was certainly, I think, in his own interest to uh, raise as much money as he thought he could at this point. And interestingly, something that uh, certainly um, my our former boss and my predecessor, Greg Hoffman, used to talk about a lot in the bank earnings was this capitalising of the software expenses. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a couple of big charges for that as well. So um, I think that's, to me, a sign that all the banks are taking this opportunity to try and clear the decks as best they can. And uh, BAP has, uh, and ANZ, um, but certainly NAB have the most exposure to business loans. And that's the reason why we've, uh, for a very, very long time, preferred Westpac and Commonwealth Bank because they're more reliant on just mortgages. And a lot of people say, well, sh- you know, theoretically, shouldn't that be the worst place to be if there's potentially a property bubble and a, and a bus coming? But when you have these recessions, it's those business loans can get wiped out very easily, whereas uh, with the mortgages, at least you've got a chance to um, go and sell those homes uh, without having to take on bad debts. Yeah, I've heard you say that quite a few times, actually. And it's been our, in fact, ever since you've been covering banks, it's been our policy to prefer the two retail banks of the two business banks. Um, and I, I think I that really dawned on me when I took a close look at the ROEs you get from mortgages. I was quite shocked. Um, so you have to kind of imply returns. There's no, they don't really break it down for you. But it looks to me as though um, mortgages generate sort of almost 30% of mid mid to high 20% ROEs. Is that what, what you'd, um, would you agree with that? Yeah, that was the calculations uh, that certainly used to be. I, I assume it's probably come down a little bit in more recent years. Uh, but one of the points I would make, and I think at the moment everyone's seeing the first order effects of this, you know, let's say we're in recession uh, and what the COVID-19 impact on the banks. But I think my experience looking, covering overseas banks for a long time now is that right at this moment, we've got US banks and UK banks, and UK banks have have a very similar market structure to Australia. They're actually got share prices now back towards the GFC lows. And this is 11 years after. So this isn't 
uh, a situation based on massive increase in bad debts or anything like this. This is telling you that uh, profits have been permanently um, impaired uh, since the GFC for a whole bunch of other reasons. And I think uh, one of those reasons, particularly in the UK, but the US is finding this now as well, is that the second order effect of low credit growth is that more intense competition for mortgages. And so you're starting to see NAB uh, and ANZ talk about uh, taking on more mortgages. And if Mm. you think of how slow mortgage growth is at the moment, imagine what that's going to be like over the next two or three years if Australia starts to deleverage, if we get stuck with an unemployment rate around 10%, we see more small businesses going broke. And remember, you generally can't get a small business loan unless you put up your uh, home as collateral. Uh, to me, that, that, I don't think that's reflected in current valuations, and that's the reason we don't have buys on them. Yeah, Macquarie is also pretty aggressive now in, in mortgage lending. I think they've taken a couple of percent market share, and they've just got into the business. Um, now, you mentioned that... Um, Sorry, Guy, I was just going to say, this no, is all ahead. on top of just all the regular stuff that's happening with the banks. I mean, margins have been coming down for a long time. Uh, once you get to that zero interest rate, it's very, very hard to increase interest rates from there, uh, particularly without affecting the economy. And when you've got what we call a flat yield curve, um, there's really not, not, not a lot of margin to be had. Um, for banks, I mean, effectively what they do is they borrow short and lend long, and they just clip the margin on that. But at the moment, long-term interest rates are effectively where short-term interest rates, so that margin's just been taken away. So when you get credit growth falling, increasing bad debts, more intense competition for those mortgages, now we're seeing those return on equity figures go sub 10%. And as uh, someone very neatly put uh, recently, in the past, you'd always use price to book value as a sort of base. You know, let's say Commonwealth Bank might earn 12% return on equity. Well, you might, in a low interest rate you know, environment, you might be able to uh, be prepared to pay, say, 1.4 or 1.5 times book value. But actually what's happening now is a NAB after this raising will be trading on a price to book value of 0.9. But if you look around the world, uh, that book value is now a ceiling and not a base for valuation. So uh, in the sense, if you, uh, I mean, that simplifies the investment equation a lot, but essentially that's saying that the banks are somewhere around fair value now and not particularly cheap. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because we're used to seeing banks in Australia trade at pretty healthy premiums to book. And in fact, I think CBA is still sort of 1.7 or so times book. Seems crazy um, compared to the others. But yeah, these discounts to book, they're not appealing yet. You, you still think that ROEs don't justify that discount? I think we've just got so used to the valuations being so high. People think that just because those share prices have come down 30 or 40% that they must be cheap. And I think it's really just reality catching up with the banks. Uh, do you know what's amazing? I remember the first bank I ever invested in when I was 18 years old was National Australia Bank. And I remember very naively getting a letter in the mail saying that uh, it was a capital raising a rights issue at $19.50. Now, remember, this is uh, like 26 years ago. At, at the, the raising was done at $19.50, and today the share price is at $16. How on earth does what was then the best-run bank in Australia uh, go through the biggest credit boom in the country's history with the biggest housing boom and 20 years on still have a share price below where it was? Uh, like, that tells you something that this... Uh, investing in banks isn't the gravy train that people necessarily think it is. Mm. Now, the other thing that 
they nab announced along with yeah the software charges i i, I noted those and and had a smile um on behalf of hoff because he used to go on about them quite a bit and we didn't haven't seen too many write-ups until now um but the other thing they announced was um impairments have gone up for the first time in in quite some time and they went up by a long way what's your view on where impairment charges currently sit are they high enough so the actual impairment charges that have actually happened weren't actually all that much higher than where they have been. But what's changed is that management have started taking a provision for bad debts on what they expect uh, over the next 12 months. And that's one of the big questions um, that you, you saw with the headlines in the major financial press yesterday. And I talk about, uh, in the NAB article I wrote, I talked about this extend and pretend. At the moment, the banks are trying to minimise the bad debts And what that does is effectively allows the banks to earn their way through the bad debts over the next two or three years and minimises the risk of another capital raising. And that worked quite well in the US. But if you look back at what the actual losses were after the GFC compared to what they were saying they were as we were just starting, they were were massive. And I have no idea how they're going to work out from here. I just, I, I mean, we're talking about at the moment, NAB's only taken a provision of, I think it was at one point, uh, two billion and Westpac have, have doubled that, but if you compare that to the size of the earnings these banks make in a year, like it's pretty tiny. Now the fact that we might have ten to fifteen percent unemployment, uh, and a lot of those jobs have been permanently lost. I mean, Flight Centre's just closed eight hundred, about to close eight eight hundred stores, uh, not just in Australia, but but those jobs aren't coming back. So if we get past this virus in the next twelve months or eighteen months, that doesn't necessarily mean the economy is going back to where it was. And if we get deleveraging by people as well, and people don't want to have that much debt anymore, then I just don't see how we can get, well, we're certainly not going back to those valuations, but my guess is those bad debts um, will continue to stick around for a while and they're probably under-provisioned at the moment. But it's just a guess because no one knows. Hmm. Well, we're always told that the capital ratios are really strong and our banks are well capitalised. Do you? Um, how do you think, what do you think the chances are for capital raisings um, from the other three as well? Yeah, I'm not so uh, negative that any of the banks are going to fall over. Like even if you look at the US banks, what they went through in the GFC, uh, they got a bit of central bank support, some government support was the TARP at the time. Uh, I expect if things got really bad in Australia, if the property market rolled over, then the government and central banks will do whatever they can to get the big four banks through. Uh, the problem is you just don't know how much capital they're going to raise and at what price through that period, which makes guessing what the valuation of these banks is going to be over the next five years quite difficult. Uh, my Commonwealth is the one that needs capital the least, uh, but it might turn out to be unavoidable, particularly if they follow the same policy that NAB has and all the banks will follow. And, and that is, as you alluded to earlier, they'll continue to pay out a dividend, even though they're raising capital uh, with the other hand. Is, is that just to release franking credits or is that just to keep the shareholder base happy? That seems like a, a mad decision, really. Yeah, I, I, my guess is it's just more to keep the retail shareholder base happy. Uh, I think there's, I mean, there's a couple of articles, articles pointed this out uh, yesterday, but I think for NAB, the root, so just regular shareholders like you and I own 48% of National Australia Bank. Mm-hmm. And yet when they raised the $3.5 billion, $3 billion went to institutions and only $500 million went to retail shareholders, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't seem fair in any way. Uh, but well, the other thing that... that we don't get a chance, we don't get even offered to buy more, more of NAP, I wouldn't mind that at all. Nothing wrong with that. And the other thing is, uh, I, I couldn't tell you what the figures were for each bank off the top of my head right now, but 
the dividend reinvestment plan have always been very uh, highly participated uh, okay. in Australia. So when the banks say they're paying out the dividends, it's usually half or more of that actually um, never gets paid out anyway or, or comes back to them. So so my view is that the Australian banks are very profitable global, by global standards. Even in a bad situation, they can still raise capital very quickly because of um, they're very profitable. They can suspend dividends uh, and with the help of the government, which remember they blessed uh, their funding back in the GFC and I'd fully expect them to do so again. But the thing we're trying to work out here is how much money we're going to make as shareholders if we buy today. And if I state it quite simply, I just look at our buy list and all these other companies where I'm very certain or very confident we can make 50 to 150 or 200% in some stocks over the next three, four, five years. And I just think even in a good scenario for the banks, um, maybe you'll be lucky to make 10 or 12% per year. And that's in a, in a good case. Mm. So, okay, so the, the case to buy, I understand, is fairly weak, and you can see that from our buy list, and that's no mystery. But what about the case to hold? Should people be selling bank shares or at least reducing their position size? Look, I think the one thing we've told people for a long time is to keep that total uh, exposure to, I think, um, is it 10%, I think we've said for a long time, and um, I think maybe 20% earlier on, but once the valuation started going up, we reduced that. So... Anyone who's followed our advice has probably got 10% of their portfolio or less in them now. Uh, but I imagine there are a lot of people out there who have just ignored that and uh, perhaps have 20 or maybe even 30% because they've been, uh, Commonwealth Bank in particular has been a very good holding for a very long time. And if you own that way back when from the early 90s, um, when it listed at $5.70, I think it was, um, you've done extraordinarily well. And I can imagine you're sitting on big capital gains with big potential taxes there to pay. So I think it's a really individual decision. I mean, investing always is anyway. Um, but as long as you've got less than 10%, I don't think you need to worry about you know losing a big stake in your portfolio. Uh, but if you do have those 20 or 30%, then I, I mean, just the simple way I look at it is I just don't think that's where you want to be. I think you better, like just this is very general speaking, obviously, but I think there are a lot of companies today who might have lower starting dividend yields than what the banks do but they'll grow much faster over the next five to 10 years and give you a better total return. Hmm. Mickey, what about you? Do you use your portfolio chock-a-block of banks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, well, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really have too much of a view. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty scary time. I think it's interesting, obviously, from the perspective of, you know, because we, we're always being compared to, you know, the index and the banks make up such a huge proportion of that index. So I guess depending on how they perform probably, um, is going to going to make up a big big chunk of that. So, um, yeah. And I guess I was speaking to Nathan uh, yesterday about how it seems kind of odd to keep raising um, raising money so that you can pay out dividends. It seems like shareholders are kind of paying themselves. But um, I guess uh, I guess it, it can make sense if you can distribute those franking credits. But yeah. I still don't totally understand it. But mm-hmm. It, it, the other point out of all this is just the um, just the the way that um, passive funds in Australia aren't always the best um, the best investment choice. The way they they are a great choice for a lot of um, international exposures. They're maybe not the be- the best here. Um, uh, the index still holds. Why is it? They about twenty five percent banks, yep. and um, that that's a lot of banks, and it's more than we've been um, advocating for for a long time. And if you drill deeper, if you want, um, if you want to buy a financial ETF, 
the NAT is at least 50% banks again. So it's just a lot of concentration in an area where you probably don't want to have that much money allocated. Well, if I bring it back to our income portfolios, I think we've all been frustrated at the performance, uh, and rightly so, over the last two or three years at least. And I think this is the first time since I've been back at Intelligent Investor where I can actually see how our income portfolio can do much, much better over the next three or four years than what the index can do. I mean, the index is essentially made up, 50% of it is almost the iron ore companies, which um, you might argue are at peak earnings. Um, You might be able to comment on that, Gaurav, um, even though the valuations have come back with the share prices recently. And and the banks, I think, are just not going back to anything like what they were going to be Mm -hmm. in terms of return on equities at 14 or 15%. Uh, That's just not going to happen. So this, uh, you know, I hate using this term because um, it just just sounds terrible, and I hate the jargon anyway. But in terms of being a stock picker's market, I I think this is actually it. I think the last ten years you've been rewarded for just buying the market. But if I look at the market today, I don't think the market itself is actually all that cheap. But I look at this handful of you know twenty or thirty stocks, and I actually think they are genuinely very cheap. And that's actually exactly the conditions we want. Now, it's not going to work out over the next 12 or 18 months, but over the next three or four years, I think we can really put some our performance on for that reason. Um, we've talked about all these stocks before, but even just I look at Star Entertainment where the market value is $2 billion, and yet the Brisbane Casino that's going to open in a couple of years is uh, going to cost $2 billion on its own. Um, now, obviously, the casino is not somewhere that people are frequenting at the moment, but you can see the upside that's there. And I think it's just you know delayed in a sense. Um, you can see it's going to be there, whereas I look at what's the upside for owning the banks today, uh, and I just don't really see what it is. Just on those iron ore companies, I'm pretty comfortable with where the valuations are at the moment, but I don't disagree that iron ore prices are not going to go up from here and um, you know, be lucky if they stay where they are for another 12 months. Um, all right, anything else on banks, gentlemen? Uh, I'll just say yeah, I'm recording uh, another webinar uh, with Evan um, over at Investmart at 9.30 on Friday. But uh, essentially, I'll just be saying the same things I've said this morning. So um, maybe you've had enough. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I had a look at uh, a new stock, Unity Group, which is actually, the, it's the second time in 12 months I've had a look at this business. And it looks completely different from the first time I had a look at it. Um, Nathan, you went to some conference and you heard the CEO talk and you came back to me raving about it. And so I went off and had a, a bit of a look at it at that stage. That was about 12 months ago. Back then, Unity was a wireless broadband business, so it set up these um, transmission towers in different geographies, and those towers allow the company to beam um, radio wave signals um, to specific straight-line points. So if you're a customer of the company and, and you can you, you call them up and they'll set up a little um, um, uh, distribution dish on your roof, and it has to be within the line of sight of their transmission tower. And if it is, you get NBN-free, um, very reliable, and relatively fast broadband uh, and, and it, with all, without all the cables and setup costs. And that was an interesting proposition, but one that I thought was quite limited in its use, and um, I wasn't that interested then. In the share price has, has climbed very swiftly since then, and so you, you nudge me again to take another look at it. And when I looked at it again recently, it was completely different. This business has, has changed. Um, they bought in some new um, key executives, and one of them is um, Vaughn Bowen, who is a um, 
He's the founder of M2 Communications, and I've heard him described as being the best deal maker in telcos. And sometimes that's a scary label, but given his track record, it probably demands some respect. In this case, he's built M2 from nothing into a $2 billion business, and it's now wrapped up into the Vocus Group. And so um, he's come in with a mandate to change the business and buy um, to, to buy new segments for it. So the new Unity Group actually looks um, very different. It actually looks closer to what Opticom is. And Opticom, if you remember, um, it's on it has been on our buy list for some time. It's um, it's a business that builds and owns fiber in new developments in its in estates and in um, uh, residential buildings. Opticom is the market leader, and um, Unity went out and bought the number two and the number three um, competitor in that industry and consolidated them. So most of Opticom now is actually a fiber monopoly business, and the rest of it is a hodgepodge of other businesses that I don't think are that interesting, but this fiber business certainly is. So I think this is just one to keep an eye on um, for the future because it's there's some really sharp people involved in this, um, and the share registrar is is quite interesting as well. So you've got, you've got really sharp management, you've got a couple of sharp investors on board, and they've just got a mandate and the ability to change this business into something quite different, and they're, they're doing that, and you can see that it's kind of working. Um, that explains why the valuation looks mad to me. It's on the same market cap as Opticom, even though Opticom is a larger business in terms of revenue, and also, I would say, a higher quality business at this stage. So you're, you're paying for management in the Unity share price, and often actually paying for management sometimes can be a worthy price to pay. They, I mean, sometimes management can make all the difference. Um, is a recession good bring... for this business? Sorry, Gaurav. Is, is a recession good for this business, for you know, a highly acquisitive business and with these sort of assets in mind? It ought to be because um, its own revenue streams don't suffer. In fact, if anything, they, they go up as people... Um, well, I guess this recession is a little bit worse than average recessions because it's... Everyone's been forced indoors, and that's actually um, increased the revenues that they're generating from their fiber assets. Um, and it's also increasing people's frustration with the NBN. So their um, wireless business has actually increased as well, which um, has been quite static. They've actually stopped reporting customer numbers from the wireless business, which, which I think tells you a lot. But they, um, they reckon that that's, been, that that's doing much better as well. Um, so it seems interesting, though, that the, uh, you know, the valuation kind of difference that you you mentioned it it, it seems like um, a lot of that just comes down to people seeing the the kind of earnings per share growth and I guess if you kind of it's it's sort of like a roll-up strategy you're just um, you know putting on new assets and you know that increases the earnings per share and I guess people see that growth and then go well, you know you can extrapolate that but um, I wonder I wonder how much um, like efficiency gains you get by, you know, buying all these extra businesses and I guess you get some more scale and um, things like that. Is that is that kind of the, the approach or? Well, um, I think that's true with fiber. I think when you put um, multiple fiber businesses together, you can potentially um, get more scale. Um, certainly they've got good relationships with uh, apartment builders and I think actually um, they might be the, the number one in – um, apartment builds and yeah. being larger does help those relationships. 
Um, I think the the thing you're, you're right about the EPS growth. One of the things that's really helped the um, the numbers for Unity is the fact that they've also been buying on the side a lot of these um, little small telco niches. So they own the company that generates um, one three hundred numbers. So you know, if you want to call your insurance company, you might call one three hundred insure or your telco, you might call one three hundred telephone or whatever. The the company that adds the words into the the phone number, that actually is a stunningly profitable little niche, and um, I think they earn about um, fifteen million dollars in EBITDA off a twenty million dollar revenue line, um, and they've been doing that for many many years. So there's not much growth in that business, but it's a highly cash generated business. And so part of Unity's strategy is to go out and buy these little tiny telco niches that just generate that aren't growing at all, but just generate really high cash flows. And they use that as a funding vehicle because um, as Opticom has discovered, some of these um, builds, owning, building and owning fiber is a capital intensive business upfront. And given that Unity actually has a fair degree of insider ownership, that's not one to want to raise equity all the time. And they have raised equity from, from time to time, but um, but being buying um, these cash generated businesses means they can generate internal cash flow to fund um, some of their fiber expansion. Um, but I, I think you wouldn't, when you were valuing this business, you wouldn't value those little niches on the same multiple as you value the fiber business, which I think is ultra high quality and, and capable of scaling and growing into quite something quite meaningful. That's just not the case with these little niches. They'll stay mm. small and they'll, I can't see them getting much bigger. So yeah, I think there's a, yeah. there's a definite valuation mismatch between Unity and Opticom. And that also, that mismatch is why Opticom has been on our buy list in the past. And Mickey, it's a business that um, that, that we, we still quite like um, and why yeah. Unity for the moment is on the watch list. I think at cheaper prices, Unity offers um, optionality uh, that other companies in that sector don't, um, especially with what management might be able to do with it. But you yeah. don't want to be paying too much for that, really. And that, mm. these valuations, for me, anyway, I think Opticom looks way better. What's your, what are your thoughts, Mickey, as the analyst? Well, one? I guess, like, one of the other things, um, as far as I understand it, is Unity is focused more on, um, you know, the multi-dwelling uh, units, so you yep. know, apartment blocks apartment and things blocks. like that. Mm. And I guess one of the attractions with Opticom, for example, is that, um, you know, it's quite well insulated from the threat from 5G because it's kind of, um, further out uh, into, you know, uh, these new estates that are built, you know, further mm. from me metropolitan areas. So um, I guess there's that. And, uh, you know, and also once that infrastructure is in place um, in a new estate, um, I think it's just harder to get another network into that than it is maybe an apartment building. I think you can potentially still get another network into an apartment building. It probably wouldn't be cheap or... Um, or anything, but it's perhaps possible. Whereas, you know, actually digging up streets and um, installing new pipes and all that, you know, into a new estate is a, is a huge job and probably, and, and there's no one really to pay for it because the developers pay Opticom up front. So, uh, and I, I just think as well, you know, less acquisitions, there's means probably maybe less, less can go wrong as well. Um, I whereas also maybe it means the upside is maybe you know, you know, it's not going to grow as quickly, but it's probably also not going to, um, you know, take on a lot of debt or get itself into, um, you know, in, in any any big problems. Hopefully, 
You mentioned that Opticom um, builds physically larger networks for estates, and, and that brings with it quite a few advantages. You can actually add on additional layers of services once you have um, sort of a larger network. You can add um, things like, um, uh, you know, uh, smart meters, smart lights, um, smart yeah. traffic lights. Um, there's a whole lot of things you can add in estates that aren't really available for apartments, and that can add more service revenue streams in the future. And I know Opticom is already building the capability even if they're not collecting the revenue for that. So that's that's a source of upside that Opticom has that maybe Unity doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, and, and I guess they've just built out that uh, because they were kind of the one of the first movers, I think they even started building these, um, you know, some of the infrastructure for these things before the NBN. Uh, so they've um, built up a lot of expertise. They've got relationships in place with, um, you know, existing property developers, uh, and so I guess just having that track record behind them um, and and the large network, you know, because they, they've obviously got to pay for a lot of fixed costs uh, and, and so spreading those fixed costs across, you know, a larger number of, of users um, means that they can probably be more competitive as well uh, on price. One thing uh, that just, actually... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going, just going to say, and just the, the processes as well internally in terms of knowing how to build these things and knowing how to do it cheaply. And mm. um, so I think, uh, yeah, so f- from all those perspectives, you know, but I don't, I don't know Unity as well as I, as, as well as I didn't know Opticon though. So one, one thing that came up in um, Unity's um, presentations was in, in one presentation I was looking at, they mentioned that they are the second lowest cost provider of um of uh, of actually building uh fiber in uh, into yeah. new into new apartment blocks and they mentioned i assume that opticon would be the lowest cost but they actually then went on to specify no one can build it as cheap as tpg which i thought was an amazing admission mm. um and i just think again just reminds us that tpg you know a lot of these new telcos are quite interesting and they have good trajectories and and some of them have good prospects, but TPG remains just an amazing business. Um, and uh, even with even very skilled management with with um, with very specific niches, struggle to compete with TPG. Uh, so I think that's that's always um, in the back of my mind. Every, every time I look at a telco, it's it's that the TPG just yeah. al- almost always does it better, does it cheaper. Um, sadly, it's not quite on the buy list yet, but it, geez, it's it's not far away either. What's the share price um, at the moment, Gaurav? It's about seven forty, seven fifty, and okay, I'd I'd upgrade away. it. Yeah, not too far away. I, I guess if you don't want to be too greedy, it's it, it's not an awful price. But I, you know, I, I feel as though we can be greedy a little bit um, <laughs> with that one for now. All right, you better not give me a, uh, enough of an opportunity to complain about TPG on the oh, podcast yeah, that's because right. um, you've been, so you've... Uh, we better move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mickey is an unhappy customer for the moment. Um, Nathan. Um, both those stocks are probably not liquid enough um, for the funds. So if for people wondering why we're raving about Opticom and yet don't have it in the funds, just um, a quick explanation for that. Yeah, I mean, we can only have so, uh, so many illiquid positions in the funds at any time anyway because we always want the funds to be nice and liquid for lots of different reasons. Um, but uh, those two in particular are very small and it's always been the irony at Intelligent Investor, where we have to wait for stocks to go up two or three times before we can start covering them, <laughs> uh, which is really frustrating. But just on a general point, I, I know most of our members are, uh, you know, pretty risk-free, and I don't know risk-free is the word, low-risk, mature type 
portfolios for income. I know that's um, what a lot of people are looking for. But just to those who are at the opposite end of that spectrum, I think at the moment there's just, a, I mean, just what I see, at least a handful, if not you know, a dozen or so uh, illiquid stocks that are very hard to get into, even funds of our small size. And I just think if you've got the next 10 or 15 years to be looking ahead and ride through another couple of cycles and you're not the sort of income type investor, which is probably most of our members, there's a bunch of uh, liquid stocks at the moment that are trading at very, very low valuations, but are just almost even uh, too small for us to cover at all in the, in the newsletter. And if you know, like, and I think Unity is probably a potential example, and Opticom's another one. Um, one I've been buying, I bought myself a little while back, is Molus, which is almost like a mini version of Macquarie Group. And like, just, there's hardly any shares trade, but if you're an individual, like it doesn't worry you. You're not trying to put, you know, unless you're very lucky, tens of millions of dollars uh, or millions of dollars to work. And I think that illiquidity at the moment is perhaps probably up until the, at least the last couple of weeks, um, you're getting a massive premium for taking on that illiquidity. And, and uh, RPM Global would be an example. Um, TGP, so 360 Capital, which uh, at one point, at the, on, on the day the market got to the low, about, what was it, probably six or seven weeks ago now, it was trading at a 20% discount to the cash that's expected to be on its balance sheet at 30 June. Um, now, that was all caused by what, someone getting up early in the morning and sold about $40,000 worth of shares, and clearly it was panicked, um, but it was probably just someone sitting at home trading in bed or on the couch. Um, but it was just because it was an illiquid stock, it just had an outsized impact. Uh, but just the huge reward for taking on that illiquidity risk, um, you know, it was, it was just, you don't see that very often. Um, you know, maybe you see it once every 10 years. So I just think if you're looking as an investor, the sorts of things, or, or an edge as we call it in, in the jargon in the industry, the sorts of advantages you have over the professionals, I think that's one um, where if you can afford to buy those sorts of stocks or that suits your, you know, your risk tolerance, um, it's a really interesting place to be looking. Yeah, no, I second that as well. Um, we've written a couple of ideas labs actually of um, of businesses that are um, for one reason or another haven't or can't go um, into the newsletter. So that might be worthwhile fishing um, in that ideas lab pond. Um, now, I'm glad you brought up liquidity because the next stuff we're going to talk about, Mickey, is Ale Group, um, which is uh, I think it, you, you've actually upgraded that and it's a buy now, even though yeah. pubs are all closed down and there's very little prospect of reopening them. Now, uh, the same scenario is true with retailers and shopping centers and retailers have been howling at shopping center owners, demanding discounts, and in some cases threatening not to pay rent at all. Yeah. Has that been the case for pubs and nail group? Yeah. Um, so I guess there's a, well, there's a few differences because, um, so the government, like shortly after the coronavirus hit, um, implemented a new code of conduct for, you know, commercial tenancies. And, and it kind of applies to businesses, um, you know, that are seeing a decline in turnover. And basically it means that the, um, you know, landlords have to accommodate that and they have to, um, you know, reduce the rent by the amount of the, um, the reduction in sales. Hmm. And, uh, but that agreement only applies to businesses with a turnover of under 50 million. So obviously ALH is um, not that. 
uh, given it's, <laughs> it's much, much larger. Uh, so, so there's not a lot of guidance, you know, in terms of what the, you know, how this gets worked out. Um, if the pubs are shut, um, it's basically just, you've got to, if, if they do want to negotiate it, then they'll have to, um, you know, communicate that to ALE. And I, I suppose that they'll have to work out what happens. Um, so there was a couple, couple of things here that are probably specific to ale, um, that, you know, maybe give it a bit more protection. And, uh, so I was talking to JC the other day and, and, and one of the interesting things is that because these pubs are so under rented already, you know, unless you're going to ask for fair rent across all the properties on the other side of this, Hmm. Um, how can you kind of selectively ask for leeway right now? Because you've mm. kind of been underpaying all this time. Mm. Um, is it fair now that you come to the table and say, well, we want a discount because, um, you know, because because of coronavirus? Well, then, you know, maybe maybe you've got to rip up all the contracts and say, well, we're starting starting again. Um, Hang on. So let, let's just back up for a second there, Mickey, because yeah. there's, some, there's some history there that people may not be aware of. So, um so Sorry. ale yeah. ale actually came out of um, ALH, which is the just no, you you explain the story. Tell us why um, ALA it may be um, earning less rent than it's entitled to, well, and what's going to yeah. make that change. So what? So basically, ale um, owns all these. Uh, I think it's eighty six pubs basically, and they're leased to ALH. Uh, and when the when the and contracts, just to explain what what ALH is for for the oh, ALH yeah. is the um well, it's owned by Woolworths well eighty five percent owned by Woolworths now mm. and it uh, it runs the, the the pubs and the the retail liquor stores um uh, essentially um is that yeah. going to be be split out into Endeavour drinks as well yes yes that is the plan I think yeah. that that's been put on hold for now right. um so yeah it doesn't doesn't matter too much who the tenant is um at this stage because it's still pretty much going to have the Woolworths backing behind it so um but uh but yeah so essentially you know when it was spun off in 2001 the contracts um were written so that you only get CPI increases uh but the the earnings of the pubs have grown much faster than CPI uh and in return um you know ale doesn't have to spend anything on property maintenance it's all managed by um you know the tenant basically but what that's meant is that you know uh, alh has spent lots and lots of money you know renovating improving these properties building um you know new retail liquor stores on top of them so the value of the sites has increased uh dramatically but the the rents have only increased at cpi um and so I guess so that's that's kind of why we, we say, you know, that they look quite under rented. Um, nobody knows exactly how much, but it's probably quite significant. Uh, and so And when so, yeah. is the, when is the first time they're allowed to charge market rent? I think that's that's an upcoming date, isn't it? Yeah, so that's twenty twenty eight. So there's one rent review this uh, sorry, from last year. Oh sorry, from twenty eighteen. And uh, and that's still being resolved. Uh, but that one's capped it plus or minus 10% on all the properties. And then there'll be one in 20, 2028 when that's uh, when um, it just reverts to market rent. And, um, and your, we, our expectation is that market rent could be up to double the, the current rent. Is that right? Pot- potentially. On some of the properties, def- yeah. definitely. Um, not all of the properties. Some will, you know, be worthless. But, um, I, you know, maybe I think we've said in past articles or past reviews that, you know, it might be, 
our estimate is maybe 60 to 80%. But I mean, you know, we're kind of, um, that was pre-coronavirus, so we don't know what, what the future is going to look like. But um, yeah, so uh so yeah so i guess that's 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 an interesting point you know how, how does that rent how do you get how do you stop paying rent if you're or you know you've been underpaying all these years hmm. um and that's i think the other the other side is just that the the retail operations will be booming um well that so. was my, that was my other question actually because um a lot of these pubs now have um substantial retail sites attached to them and so um it's not as though the pubs are generating zero revenue with which to pay rent, you've got these um, substantial retail sites, um, and they're actually the sales have held up quite well, right, Mickey? In those sites, yeah. I mean, I've been reading articles about um, you know in the SMH how you know people are getting seven hundred and fifty dollars from from the government and heading down and buying a couple of cases from you know Dan oh, Murphy's. Or you've whatever been reading articles about that, <laughs> have you? Uh, don't worry. Um, one, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to pubs reopening. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, uh, it'll be, it, yeah, so that's kind of the, the situation and I guess we get Woolworths results, uh, you know, I think it's next week. Um, and so we'll keep, keep an eye on those, but I think it, it's probably going to be a very good, good quarter for, for those retail liquor stores. Most I think likely. this is, this is a really interesting situation, um, because I think Aeol is potentially getting lumped into a whole lot of other landowners who are really struggling with um, with their tenants um, revolting. Not that the tenants are revolting, but their tenants are, are <laughs> saying, we're not, we're not going to pay rent or we demand discounts. And as you rightly point out, Mickey, um, ALA, ALE is a very specific case where their tenants have actually been underpaying them for a good part of 20 years. So that argument is quite hard to sustain. And I think that has been lost by the market, who's just lumping it in together. Uh, an example of the counter argument, Mickey, might be Centre Group, which um, which probably has been over earning for a very long time, and its customers, well, its um, tenants probably have a very strong case for demanding lower rents. How do you think that scenario uh, will play out? Well. Uh... I guess there's a lots lots of headaches that need to be worked through. Uh, it's not not going to be simple. Um, I think just in these situations um, that you've got to look for where you know there's a, there's maybe a mismatch in terms of the fundamentals and the and the price. And I think like for ale, for example, the price is down twenty five thirty percent, but maybe the fundamentals haven't really changed all that much. Whereas Center Group, you know, the price is down fifty percent or whatever it is, but you know, the fundamentals have gotten probably much much um, worse, and so you know, you're kind of making an argument: is it fifty percent worse? Is it thirty percent worse? Is it you know, it's quite a difficult thing to work through. Um, so I guess just those those headaches, you know, they're not going to be easy to solve. Like just big chains closing all their stores, refusing to pay rent. Um, you know, I guess some people argue, you know, you can just take the hit for a year and add it to your debt and then everybody gets going again. But, you know, it, on the other side of this, um, you know, consumer confidence probably won't be where it is. You know, many small retailers probably won't survive. Um, you know, Maya, the big discount, um, big department stores, you know, they're, they're, you know, could reduce their footprint or, um, and that can activate, you know, co-tenancy clauses and other issues. Um, 
So, and then obviously you've got online as well, you know, so that, and there's, there's lots of operating leverage in these businesses as well. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of issues to work through there and it's just complicated and, um, you know, I don't the think valuations anybody... here are quite yeah. interesting though, because center is now trading, uh, I think it's less than half, about 40% of, um, tangible asset value and ale is trading at a small premium, which is probably right when you consider that the, the value, um, of their properties actually maybe higher than what uh, what the cash flows suggest. Yeah. Um, do you think either of those, I mean, we've got a buy on ale and we don't really have strong opinions on center group for now. Um, what's, I mean, in previous podcasts, we've sort of talked about center group a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on, on center group? Is it one that you keeping an eye on? Is it one that you're tempted by or are you just terrified by it all? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, you can make an argument. Everything has a price. Um, so I think, and I think that's a valid argument. So, uh, you know, if anyone else in the team, you know, was in favor of upgrading it, they, you know, more than, more than welcome to take it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, way to pass but, the buck, Vicky. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've done, I've done some of the numbers on it. Uh, and, you know, so the current yield is, I think, 11% or 10 and a half percent based on, you know, last year's dividend. Uh, and so, you know, if it, I think you've just got to look at the different scenarios. If you, if you, so I went through and did a couple of examples. So if you take a 10% decline in rental revenues, and that would mean, you know, knock on in valuations, um, then, uh, and, and, and assuming you have to, you know, raise some money to reduce your gearing, you know, then maybe you get your yield back to eight and a half percent, but that's including, uh, sorry, that's assuming a 10% decline in rent. Um, if you assume, you know, a 20 or a 30% decline in rent, uh, you know, gearing could go as high as, you know, 40, 50%. Um, and then you've got to raise a lot of money. Uh, and so, you know, you're looking, you know, at a, at a yield maybe of 4 to 9%, um, depending on which scenario plays out. Um, so, you know, maybe that's attractive. Uh, that probably is quite attractive to, to some people um, for these assets. Um, what do you expect in but, terms of capital raisings, Mickey? Well, I, I struggle to see how they get away without raising capital, um, you know, because on the other side of this valuation, like valuations are already under pressure um, before coronavirus. And so after coronavirus, you know, I, don't, I mean, I don't know exactly, but it depends on how much rents decline you know what happens to those valuations um but you know if you could you might have to raise anywhere from you know say one or two billion up to you know maybe four four billion um uh you know maybe and and so that's quite that's 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 going to hit your hit your yield um i mean there there are scenarios maybe where it gets through without a capital raise but i um, i don't i don't know what do you guys think well, I've bought a little bit of Center Group, um, mostly for the for the capital raise. I, I, I agree. I can't see how they get out of this without a capital raise, um, and I'm a bit surprised they haven't pulled the trigger on one. Although it must be really difficult to raise capital, sort of at half your your asset value. Um, it's probably a painful mm. thing for them to do, and they're probably delaying it as much as they can. Um, but I think one is inevitable. Um, so I, I kind of want to be prepared for that because I think these are ultimately very good assets, and yeah. um, uh, even if they won't be as good as they were in the past. They're, they're strategically located. 
Um, it's still the place for physical shopping, and I don't think physical shopping is going to be dead. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm interested. Yeah, I heard Alex talking about it last week, and I think he mentioned he bought it at dollar fifty, which yeah. I think is um, at that at that price, the equation probably does does start to make sense. Um, so I guess it is just a question of price, but um, yeah, it might also be one of those ones where you want to take a little stake now and maybe get access to a share purchase plan or something to increase your stake. Yeah, that's exactly that's that's the plan, Nate. Yep, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I've done it for Star Entertainment. It doesn't look like yeah. it's forthcoming, unfortunately. Ale is also quite interesting as well. I, I think that's um, it's always been one that I think doesn't screen really well as a um, yield or property stock, but there's actually quite a lot going on there, and we have to be patient for those returns because it, the bulk of your returns are going to come in that twenty twenty eight rent review, where suddenly I think revenue um, or rent will start increasing quite a bit, and mm. we have to be patient up to then. But it's a great bunch of assets. Yeah, and and lots of redevelopment potential as well. You know, down the track, um, if A eleven needs to knock down a pub and build something else, it's pretty easy to do. So, um, yeah, and and they're well located. Well, there's plenty of people who basically live at the pub anyway. So all you have to do is add a bathroom and a kitchen, and you got your apartment right there. Um, Nathan, we we don't have exposure to either of those in the funds. Um, any any thoughts on on either stock? No, not a lot, but just uh, for anyone who's been with us since back with the GFC, they might remember I did a heap of work on on what's now S Centre and Westfield, and I was putting putting spreadsheet publishing prints, <laughs> excuse me, publishing spreadsheets uh, in the article so people would have a play around. And and the two things you've got is one, you got the debt issue, um, but it's across the industry, it's just nowhere near what the issue was during the GFC. With every yeah, downturn, really. you have particular industries that are more impacted than others. During the GFC, the, the REITs, A-REITs just got told they had too much debt, and even if their assets were good and performing well, which the Australian ones in particular did, the banks just said, we're not accepting 40% debt to assets anymore. We want you to get it down to 30 And so so they did. So they raised all that money, and it was quite dilutionary for a lot of businesses. Uh, you haven't got that problem this time around. I think any capital raisings will be far more limited anyway. But the other thing, I think the bigger problem you've got this time is just the rents that your specialty retailers are prepared to pay. And uh, Westfield used to publish a report every two years. I don't know whether they still do. Uh, And you could actually go and work out how much rent per square metre the specialty retailers paid compared to the anchor tenants. And and when I used to do the calcs, it was six times more. So remember, it's only over a much smaller floor space, but you get a sense of where all the profit comes from. Because essentially you build a, uh, you know, it's like a toll, toll bridge. It's You build a shopping centre and then you fill it with anchor tenants and maybe a few specialties and it, I don't know what the exact number is, but maybe at 75 or 80% uh, occupancy, you you cover all the expenses and then the last 20% is all cream. And the cream is all those specialty retailers who are prepared to pay those um, big uh, rents per square metre. And if they're all not going to pay those, you know, maybe if the number drops from six times to four times or three times over the next five years, then all that comes off the bottom line. So it doesn't take much of a falling revenue to have a much, much bigger impact at the bottom line. Uh, essentially, that's what we call operating leverage uh, in, in jargon. Um, so that's probably the thing I'd be more worried about than the balance sheets. Yeah. If everyone is concerned about this structural change to online and, and 
that has no question accelerated. You look at the numbers coming out of any online retailer now, and they are just flying. But um, I think what's sometimes missed is just the optionality these shopping centers have. Um, and you can see it every time you go into one that um, there's dental surgeries and doctor surgeries and cinemas and heaps of fooderies. It's not necessarily about selling um, you know, um, specialty retail anymore. There's a whole lot of services that can be conducted out of Westfield shopping centers. And I'm not sure that's, people are caught up in the structural change without really thinking about the response. Um, and you, I think the valuation really reflects that fear. So, um, you, yeah, I'm interested. Well, you saw the Lowy family started selling out of the more, uh, shopping centres that were less well located. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, a number of years ago, like, I guess what you might, I wouldn't call them B-grade malls because they're still Westfields, but um, the ones that just, you know, not, not those core ones sitting on top of big transport sites like at Bondi Junction mm -hmm. or in Pitt Street Mall. And so I think um, they were the last things that, Lowy sold out of so there's still an enormous amount of value in those it's just trying to work out exactly what that value is but um, you know obviously if you're looking at those malls that are further out a bit more regional um, they're the ones you, I don't think you really want to own you know I wouldn't say it there is always a price for them but um, you know in the most in a somewhat normal rational market they're the ones that I'd be staying away from yeah completely agree with that um, right Mickey anything else to add uh, no, not really. Um, yeah, I think we covered it off pretty pretty well. So. Yeah. And I'm um, impressed that you're able to complete without having uh, a rant against TPG, which you've been doing on, <laughs> on every email correspondence we've had. So that's great. <laughs> well, I'm actually thankful because uh, we always talk warm, and this is an old buffetism, but he always warns that the best investment ideas don't generally fall into your mailbox. And funnily enough, uh, I'm a customer of FuseNet, uh, which is owned by Unity Wireless, and I did actually get an offer at 20 cents a share in the IPO was it last year. And so just on this one occasion, uh, a great deal did actually land in my inbox. But <laughs> when it listed, it was the business didn't look anything like what it does today. The yeah. you know, Vaughan, Bowen and all those other guys weren't involved at all. And I just looked at this and it was a you know, small uh, internet retailer because uh, we were living in Meriton building. And so all our, up until the NBN, we've had to use FuseNet, you had no choice. And I'm actually very thankful because TPG sent us a letter the other day saying we can now get internet from, I guess, from the NBN from them for 60 bucks and I got a 10% reduction from FuseNet. So uh, one, you need to be careful about the future profit margins at uh, Unity, um, but also TPG to be a favour. I didn't have to change, so thank you. Yeah, they're almost always the cheapest, those guys. It's uh, It's amazing how they do it. I mean, no more fawning on TPG. I, I don't even own that <laughs> stock yet, and I'm still—it's one of my actually one of my, one of my favorite businesses. I still don't even own it. Um, yeah, you could have back you smart people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, gents. Um, great to, to have you both on board, Mickey. Thanks very much for for joining us. Thanks, Gorev. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Nate, uh, for your time as well. No worries. Thanks, Gorev. Cheers, Mickey. Everyone else, thanks for listening.